Hello, and welcome back to Ben Shapiro. I'm Ben Shapiro, and I'm going to review some movies for you because someone else in this world uh, has to make it clear that Hollywood's woke agenda will not go unnoticed. So let me begin. Uh, first up, The Matrix Resurrection. Some of you may have seen me post on Twitter that I thought this was absolutely horrible. And I have to continue here that yes, it is horrible. And dare I say, blasphemous. The film portrays a not just a Jesus allegory, but a trans Jesus allegory. This is, of course, disgusting and blasphemous. How are Christians going to feel when they go to the movie flex and see a transgender Jesus? That's just a little bit too much for my sensibilities. Also, the film displays the humans now living in harmony with many of the machines. Ah, that's um, quite questionable. Uh, as I remember, the machines were like uh, Nazis and stuff. So is it so obviously the liberal media here is perfectly fine with being friends with metaphorical robot Nazis. Clearly, I have not misinterpreted the meaning of the film or its important nuances. Clearly, I'm the one on the right here. <clears throat> the next movie I'm going to talk about is, of course, Spider-Man No Way Home. I will warn you, there might be spoilers in my description here. But, you know, it's a movie with a woke agenda that we cannot tolerate. Let me elaborate. The new Spider-Man movie is decidedly anti-police and anti-death penalty. In the movie, Spider-Man is pursued by the police uh, as if he were a common criminal. How disgusting. What a terrible thing to say about our men and women in uniform. Also, Spider-Man No Way Home has a distinctive no kill, don't kill evil people mentality and morality. That, of course, is woke as hell. I'm just going to say it. I, oh, did I say hell? I'm sorry. Uh, I meant woke as double H-E double hockey sticks. My bad. But anyways, No Way Home is incredibly, incredibly woke. And its, its major plot point being is that Spider-Man refuses to kill his enemies from across the multiverse, saving and instead deciding to cure them, quote unquote, to save them from the death penalty. This is, of course, just a bunch of liberal anti-death penalty propaganda designed to make you feel uh, bad for criminals. Because if there's one thing we know about the woke agenda, it is a, you know, a, a pro-criminal. Pro that's that's right. There, I said it. I had the bravery to say that it is, uh, you know, a pro-criminal. But uh, anyways, also, there is literally a moment in this film, and it's absolutely disgusted me and made me feel heartbroken for such an actor as Andrew Garfield, where the film literally has him apologize to a black man for being white. Oh my God. When will Hollywood learn to stop being racist against the most oppressed people of all, the white man? All right. Now, my final film and easily the most socialist or communist of any of the films I saw is actually not a new film, but an old one. I'm of course talking about the well-beloved Charlie Brown Christmas special. Now, I am a Jewish man, and so I normally celebrate Hanukkah, but I love Christmas and love supporting it against the war on Christmas. And of course, I personally believe that the war on Christmas begins here with Charlie Brown's Christmas. The film is incredibly anti-capitalist. Throughout the film, they, the children refer to, complain about Christmas being too commercial, specifically Charlie Brown, who is the biggest beta male cuck there could possibly be. Charlie Brown complains about the commercialization of Christmas. Of course, we all know that commercialization is a liberal code word for capitalism. Therefore, capitalism is ruining Christmas. As we all know, that is a lie. Capitalism has made Christmas the greatest holiday in the history of holidays, which is an undeniable fact based on its financial success. To make matters worse, the film portrays Lucy very negatively despite the fact that she is the clear capitalist of the group. The film thinks we should be mocking Lucy because she says what she wants for Christmas is real estate. But of course, this child is of course the only sensible child, the only adult child, the only one who has put aside childish things to understand that the market is the only real place that you should be investing your money. Don't buy toys when you can buy real estate. But of course, the grand Piece de resistance at the end of the film can only be described as the most horrifically socialist thing I've ever seen in my entire life. At the end of the film, Charlie Brown, of course, because he is a beta male cuck, ruins 
Christmas by buying a incredibly, incredibly shitty tree. Like the shittiest tree you could possibly imagine. Obviously this tree, however, is a, is a, uh, 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 a metaphor for the working class or the poor. At the end of the film, in the film, Charlie Brown abandons his tree to die, just as the Democrats will obviously abandon all the poor, only to have the rest of the children come in and absolutely create property damage by stealing all of Snoopy's hard-earned, hard-earned, and I do repeat, hard-earned decorations from his prize-winning decorations on his doghouse. This is a complete undermining of the um, the um, meritocracy as they come in and rob a successful capitalist like Snoopy to give all of his wealth and by that I mean decorations to a tree, which is now magically a good tree just because we have changed its material uh, uh, situation with, with ornaments. This is the most blatant socialist metaphor I've ever seen in a film. And frankly, I am disgusted. Disgusted by all of this and Christmas. Well, no, I love Christmas. I'm just disgusted with Charlie Brown's treatment of Christmas. Now you may say the, that the movie does quote the Bible, but I tell you that, you know, this is uh, just to cover up their true socialist intentions. Absolutely disgusting. That being said, I am Ben Shapiro and I am now gonna go home to make love to my wife on the way God intended with her incredibly dry vagina on the day of the week that we both agreed that she cannot say no to my advances. All right, thank you very much. And I am Ben Shapiro. Welcome to the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Ruben Uncut. I will be sipping beverage as I do this recording, but we're going to keep it cash for this episode. Uh, basically, this is the beginning of my podcast, where you'll just be hearing my various thoughts. I'm a person who likes to talk about things like comic books, video games, and politics. Uh, not necessarily all at the same time. And today, I've been struggling with getting my podcast created because I keep getting very ambitious ideas for episodes, and uh, it's just too much work, and I keep putting it off. Uh, but here... Oh, my God. Starting to sound like Ben Shapiro again. Okay, let's try and cool that down. But uh, here today, I will be going over my movies for 2021. Now, I want to be clear. This I'm not doing a, a basic top 10. I'm going to be talking about all the new releases I saw this year, including the movies that made it into my top 10. So before we begin, I should, <coughs> excuse me. Should probably make a couple of notes. <coughs> Excuse me again. <coughs> Might edit that out. I know it's uncut, so I will keep the cops in. All right. So, anyways, what I was saying though, uh, just for some clarification, a couple of things. While I do love a good artsy movie, I did not see many artsy movies this year. My, so my list is going to be full of a lot of genre stuff, action and sci-fi and fantasy, that kind of stuff, okay? I know, I know, I want to see Macbeth, but it's on Apple TV and, you know, fuck Apple. Uh, and uh, there's a bunch of other movies that I'm sure are great that I just did not get around to seeing because either they were only in theaters or they felt like the kind of movie where I'd have to be in the right mood to see them. Uh, so yes, I am certain there are some incredible films missing from this list. Uh, I saw a total of 24 films, most of which I enjoyed to some degree, and only one of which I really, really hated. That doesn't mean I'm not going to be complaining about some of the movies that didn't make it into my top 10. I might even complain about some of the ones in my top 10. But um, this is the movies in the order of how good I think, how they compare to each other. So let's just get right into it. So we're going to start with 24. Like I said, I 
overall enjoy most of the movies I saw this year in some capacity, with the exception being this movie, which I thought was insane garbage. <clears throat> I am, of course, speaking of Space Jam A New Legacy, which on Letterboxd I gave a star and a half. Uh, whew, oh my God, just where to even begin with this movie? I like, so I feel very similarly about Space Jam, The New Legacy. Uh, the way I do, I, I, the way I feel about Ready Player One, that it is essentially just this horrific example of pop culture uh, cannibalizing itself into what is more an ad than an actual film. An ad specifically for Warner Brothers and LeBron James as a person, I guess. Uh, but there's like so many elements of this film that just like blow my mind in terms of their uh, general awfulness. <clears throat> First of all, Don Cheadle looks like he's physically in pain every time he's talking. I like, I, I don't know how they got him in this movie. He's a great actor. He looks very unhappy to be there. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's just the way it sounds because he's playing a weird robot. Don't know. There's the, other th the next, very next thing that I have to comment that it's like 20 minutes before any Looney Tunes show up in this movie. They're not even in, before any Looney Tunes even show up in this movie. I mean, that's not, I don't know if that's the exact time, but it's roughly 20 minutes. Might be a whole freaking half hour. I don't know. But like, the film is clearly centered on LeBron James to the point where like this, to the point where, you know, the cartoon characters are just kind of there to like bounce off of him. And yeah, the film is ridiculously just a commercial for Warner Brothers that is even worse than Ready Player One in terms of its, hey, everybody, remember this movie? Remember this movie? This cartoon? This property? This property? This property? Uh, yeah, no, because at least we kind of got why Ready Player One was like that. Uh, Space Jam, A New Legacy, there's, there's, there's really no purpose to it other than to, I don't know, expand on the concept of the original Space Jam, uh, maybe, or something. Uh, I don't know. But then we got a, oh boy. So, but the weird, now don't be wrong, it, the movie has its moments of, of humor. Although if I'm being honest, ultimately the reason I'm less forgiving of the film is because a lot of the humor did fall flat for me with the exception of a couple jokes like the Michael B. Jordan, Michael B. Jordan uh, troll move, the, pull, the film pulls, or the, uh, or the, uh, uh, the various Looney Tune mashups with different movies. The only one I thought was particularly clever or funny was, uh, was Wile E. Coyote and Mad Max. That's funny. I'm sorry. It was. Everything else was kind of very, eh. And the film doesn't really make a choice when the Looney Tunes go to the DC universe because the animation neither matches any of their animated features and it doesn't feature any of the live action characters or things. So it's like, okay, I understand that you're not really sure where you're going with your DC stuff at the time you made this movie, but like, it doesn't, it's, it's what DC properties should I be in love from watching this? None. I have no idea. Them in general, maybe? I don't know. Finally, the we also at various points the movie is really hideous. Like the, the uh, when they actually get down to playing the basketball, which is played more like some type of iPhone game. The the essentially they the backgrounds are hideous. The crowds are hideous. They are people in Warner Brothers cartoon cost. Warner Brothers costumes that have been hideously green screened into the background and their costumes also hideous. Also hideous and cheap. Also, it's super weird to cut out Pepe Le Pew for being a rapist, which don't get me wrong. I am not here to say it, to defend Pepe Le Pew. Pepe Le Pew is a fucking rapist. He is a disgusting animal cartoon written with the worst of intentions. Fuck Pepe Le Pew. 
However, you know, when you, you cut Pepe Le Pew out of your movie and you leave the droogs from Project, from the uh, Clockwork Orange in your, in your fucking backgrounds, that, 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 that's a very mixed message, Warner Brothers. You're, you're gonna remove this one rapist, but then you're gonna sneak a bunch of gang rapists into the background? What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? The film also, I'm also really want to know who was, who had to pitch this concept to LeBron James and like get him in a room and be like, okay, the whole premise of the movie is that you're a terrible dad. Okay. Will you sign on for that? And then LeBron James is like, hell yeah, sign me up to be a terrible dad. And that's the movie. Now that's basically the movie. Until it all leads up to one climactic what the fuck moment. Where Bugs Bunny fucking dies. I, I mean this. Like, literally, he, he takes a shot that glitches out the game, and they know it glitches out the game and cancels and erases your character when you do it. And LeBron is going to make the shot. But at the last minute, Bugs Bunny steps in and makes the shot for LeBron so that he dies instead of LeBron, so that LeBron can go back home with his family. Which, you know, good for you, Bugs Bunny. But it's weird as fuck. Like, literally, they bring him back. To, he dies slowly. They bring him back to cart to cart to the uh, Looney Tunes world in Warner Brothers Studios, and then all his friends gather around him as he slowly dies. It's they 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 fucking old man Logan Bugs Bunny. It's bizarre. <clears throat> I mean, they bring him back a few minutes later, you know, because I assume an, a movie executive walked into. Uh, saw a screen of the film and was like, what the fuck? You can't kill Bugs Bunny. And so they had to throw that scene in there, which of course makes the scene where he dies meaningless, uh, emotionally abusive garbage. And yeah, what the fuck? I've talked about the movie way too long. And I would just round it out by saying, at the end of the day, my major complaint with this film is that it's a movie that that presents algorithms as being part of movie making as simultaneously being the villain and also the future, while also, at the same time, feeling like it is probably the first movie written with an algorithm. After that... Now that, like I said, that was the only movie that I truly didn't really get any real enjoyment out of it. There were a couple moments of what the fuck that is happening that I do enjoy experiencing the novelty of. But overall, I didn't like the film. Now, if you love this film or it means something to you because of the first Space Jam or whatever, go with that. Embrace that. I'm not here to tell anyone what movies they should or should not love. These are just my opinions, and opinions ain't worth shit. All right, moving on to movie 23. The Tomorrow War. The Tomorrow War is a movie that exists. And that's, that's a, that's, that's a, that's, a, that's about it, really. I mean, it's a, it's a very derivative action sci-fi time travel movie with a couple cool premises in it and a, and a nice family dynamic going on between some of the characters. It's got a couple good actors in it, but ultimately, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it just feels like any sci-fi movie if it was any made for sci-fi movie if it was given a proper budget and cast you know it's there's nothing really here it's just very derivative aliens with all of it moving towards a climax it doesn't really make sense okay let me ask let me ask you this okay so at the end of the movie they have to go to russia to fight the aliens before the aliens gain power uh and, and like the thing about this moment is is that like in the movie, they, like, can't get Russia to agree with it. But, like, Russia already agreed to let time travelers kidnap their citizens and take them to the future to fight these aliens. So it seems weird that Russia would not agree to fight the aliens in present-day time to prevent, you know, all that death. So I just don't think that makes sense. I mean, I understand that it's to give an excuse for J.K. Rowling's dad, who's one of the best characters in the movie, to show up and help everybody. But, like, eh, it's nonsense. But it's, you know, it's, it's dumb nonsense. But, you know, as far as dumb nonsense goes, Tomorrow War is, uh, it, it's all right. It, I gave it three stars. 
Uh, letterbox, it's, uh, it's fine. Just, just fine. Halloween Kills is number 22. Um, I liked the, uh, the first Halloween they did here. And I, and I, I, I watched this movie twice to try and figure out how I feel about it. And I do think I liked it a little bit more the second time. But I really don't think the film has the same, uh, impact as the first movie. This one just, as, as one of my friends put it, it just feels like an, a, a, there's a serial killer with ADHD. Like, literally, it's just, it's just Michael Myers running around killing people, sometimes for no real reason. Uh, and the film is full of characters who've just been introduced for him to murder them. And and, and if, if what you want is a bona fide slasher where tons of people get killed brutally, and I do mean at certain points brutally, like maliciously, violently, then, uh, yeah, no, it... Then you might enjoy it. If you if uh, if I lost you with the at the brutally violent part, this film is not for you. Uh, I will say that the film's themes of of uh, fear motivating crowds of people to to violence is uh, is a is a theme that resonates very hard, and uh, is is probably the most frightening part of the film is how relevant it actually is. That being said, it just, for some reason that I can't quite put my finger on, it just doesn't, doesn't hit the same way the first movie did. Uh, that I, hopefully, Halloween Ends uh, will be better. And this will just be sort of like that, that mid-chapter that's only alright. Number 21. Next up, further, further horror movies than I saw this year. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which actually gave three and a half stars. So people might be confused as to why it's at this part of my list. And the answer is simply this. Uh, I, I rewatched all the, I watched all the Conjuring movies leading up to it, and it, it's, it's good. It's, if you like the series, I totally recommend it, but like, I also thought it was one of the lesser memorable ones, like Annabelle, Origins, and uh, even The Nun, kind of, I thought were more entertaining. And then, of course, the other Conjuring movies. You know, I mean, but it's not bad. It's 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 a good ride. If you like the series, it's totally worth watching. If you if you uh, if you like ghost or possession movies, then yeah, you'll probably also like it. Uh, but it's definitely not my favorite horror movie I saw this year. But I will get to that soon. Next up is Mortal Kombat at twenty. So I gave three stars. Uh, uh, oh my, okay, I'm gonna try not to complain about this movie too much, but basically the best way to describe this movie is that, the, my basic statement about this movie comes down to this. If this movie, if the whole movie played out like the first seven minutes of the movie, this movie would have been fucking awesome. Like, mind-blowing jump-up for video game movies. The first seven minutes of Mortal Kombat are awesome. None of the rest of the movie is like that. Like, literally, it tonally and, like, how it handles the characters and the degree to what, what it gives the other characters versus what it gives Sub-Zero and Scorpion in the beginning of the movie is just not equal to it. There are seven minutes of an incredible film in here followed by kind of a drag. And like it's, and don't be wrong. It, when I I actually rewatched the '90s Mortal Kombat movies to try and figure out how I felt about the series, and what I can tell you is this: is that it's not a one-to-one -one thing. 1995's movie does some things a lot better than this movie, but this movie also does some things better and has some advantages that the 1995 movie didn't have. You know, like being rated R. That's certainly one advantage that this film has over the 1999, I mean, 1995 version. And both films are, to be fair, better than Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Uh, but the major problem I have here is, A, the MCUing of the Mortal Kombat movies. Warner Brothers still doesn't really understand what a shared movie universe apparently is. So their idea here is, what if we just dragged out the events leading up to the first 
tournament. Uh, that's totally a killer... No, it's not. That's a fucking stupid idea. You're dragging out the story for no reason. And also... But then this is the thing. Hollywood does not really understand video games or the franchises that are connected to them. And this is very apparent by the fact that Hollywood felt they needed to create makeup and everyman character to put in the film, which is dumb. Like, profoundly dumb. Why is that dumb? Well, I don't know, because, I don't know, have you ever played a fucking fighting game? Fighting games don't have an everyman character. Every character in a fighting game has to be wild and colorful and looks like they have their own backstory just in their fucking costume. Every man need not apply to a fighting game because the entire point of a fighting game character is that it's supposed to stand out to you and make you want to play as them because they're insane badasses. But no, someone in Hollywood was like, well, could we have a, an everyman character to lead people in with? And someone in the studio was like, yeah, it's a great idea, even though it's a dog shit idea. Dog shit. It's a it, this is the thing. Hollywood cannot think they're dog shit at understanding the translation of other mediums to film. Like, they cannot get their head around the idea that other mediums might have stories to tell. And so they always have to twist it into things they think they understand, into things that Hollywood understands better. And it's infuriating. Also, this everyman character is is boring. His MMA back, his MMA fighter backstory. Oh, you really thought real hard about that backstory, didn't you, mortal? Didn't you guys? Oh, his incredibly generic. It's also inc his incredibly generic background, I might add. And the film has a moment where it could redeem him. If he had become the new Scorpion, because he's related to the old, he's the descendant of the original Scorpion, I could have been down with that. I could have been down with that. That could have been redemption in the final act, but it's not what goes down. Instead, he turns into a weirdo whose power is essentially a cheat code. The more you hit him, the stronger he gets. And like, so just, you know, in a fighting game, that would be insanely imbalanced. That would be insanely imbalanced for a fighting game. Unless it was something that everyone did. And then he has an absolutely dog shit fight with Goro, and it's trash. There are good fights in the movie, and there are fun things, and you get to see fatalities, and that's really all you need. But Jesus Christ, Hollywood, figure out how to make fucking video game movies. Next up, Godzilla vs. Kong, which I gave three and a half stars on Letterboxd. Uh, number 19 is... Which is, that's at number 19. And the thing about Godzilla vs. Kong is it delivers on the only thing that I ever needed to deliver on. Which was Kong and Godzilla punching each other in the face. And if you go to the movie for that, with that intention, you will get a good time. Do I remember what the fuck is going on with the humans in this movie? I absolutely fucking do not. I know that each of the monsters has their own little girl who stands them and tries to protect them from the other humans. And then the humans have some type of plan to try and kill Godzilla or some shit, and it's it's whatever. And then there's Hollow Earth stuff. And the film does feel like a lot of shit has been cut out of it. And it makes you go, hmm, I wonder what the fuck they cut out of this. But, uh... But overall, it does the only thing it needs to do, which is have Godzilla and Kong have cool-ass fight scenes against each other. And the one thing I really liked about the film is that it really makes King Kong feel like a character. Even though he has no dialogue, we can feel what he's thinking. And that part's awesome. And that's really all I have to say about this movie, which is why it's actually not as far up the list. Venom Let There Be Carnage is my number 18. Gave it three stars on Letterboxd. I know, I know. But I kind of liked it more than Godzilla vs. Kong. Okay, I did. I enjoy, I enjoy the Venom movies. They're weird. They're weird, and that's all I really need. They're weird, and that's all they really need from them. Do they live up to the scope of other superhero movies? No, no, they really don't. But, you know, the Venom, but these movies do feel, you know, like, do kind of feel like the Venom miniseries is from the 90s, where they're very weird. And they never really build up to much. Will they be able to build this uh, character up in the future to a more epic thing? Uh, maybe. 
But maybe that's also not what we need from Venom. Maybe we need Venom to be that turn-off-our-brain one. You know? Maybe we need Venom to be that turn-off-our-brain one. That's all I'm saying. I guess the only real question is, should the future Venom movies be rated R? I mean, I kind of think they should, but maybe that wouldn't be enough money to make them successful. Hard for me to say. But moving right along to number 17. And this is going to be a controversial one, because I know there are going to be people who are going to like, What do you mean that's number 17? How dare you not put it higher on your list? That was an awesome movie! Have you no soul? And uh, my response to that is, look, buddy, I liked this movie. I just also thought it was dumb. And that movie is Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I gave three and a half stars on Letterboxd. Okay, so first of all, my problem with this movie and why it's not higher on my list... Why it's not higher on my list is simply this. Uh, it's... It, it, the movie asks me to buy into a couple of basic concepts that really, if you think about them, are dumb. Like, okay, so, so like, and these are spoilers. I, I should have mentioned spoilers at the beginning, but this is definitely a spoiler. If you, skip ahead if you have that option, if you don't want to hear spoilers for these things and you just want to know where things are on my list. Well, here's my problem with Ghostbusters Afterlife, is it just, it asks me to really swallow a lot of bullshit that is, doesn't make sense. Okay, so essentially this film wants me to believe that the events of the first two Ghostbusters movies happened. To reiterate, those are things like a giant marshmallow man exploding all over New York, and exploding all over New York, a giant Statue of Liberty walking through New York, I sent walking through New York till it gets to the art museum, and of course, you know, the piles of physical evidence that the Ghostbusters spend collecting through both films. The, all these things exist, and yet this movie wants me to believe that these events had just as much effect on the world and people's understanding of the world as the movies themselves. Which is to say, almost no ex nothing. Like, this Ghostbusters movie, if it takes place in this time period, you know, everyone, A, everyone should know who the fuck the Ghostbusters is. It should be being taught in schools. Science should have advanced a lot. And, you know, people's attitudes on the afterlife should kind of be reflected in the world. But the world building in this film is nonsense in this regard. Also, the film wants us to believe, wants us to believe that the rest of the Ghostbusters treated Egon Spangler like a fucking lunatic when he told them the end of the world was coming and that it would involve Gozer. Never mind that the Ghostbusters had first-hand experience with both A, an end-of-day scenario, B, B, Gozer himself, I mean themself, and finally, fucking Ray owns a goddamn bookstore where he sells books about this exact shit. And we're supposed to believe that all the other Ghostbusters were like, oh, well, he's fucking lost his mind. And then just a neglected him it's insanity it literally from a character written stance does not make sense objectively it's fucking just so the story can happen that being said while the film is dumb as balls like very stupid it has a great heart the film features a, the film is practically carried on Grace McKenna's back as the main character. Her performance is fucking awesome. She's great in it. It's just, yeah, she's great. That's, that's all there is to it. She is great in the film. 
all the stuff with the tributes to Harold Ramis really strikes you in the, in the heart. It's a very heartfelt film, but it's also weird and not thought out. Like, here's the other thing. Okay, so here's the other thing. It, it, I don't really hold against the film, but I definitely think it's weird. So the first two films are these very irreverent comedies that sort of emphasize, like, with very irreverent takes on society and the Reagan era. And it's very irreverent. However, this film starts out as a slow burn family dramedy. Like, I swear to God, nothing funny happens in the first half hour. Uh, that slowly morphs into a Ghostbusters movie, while at the same time maintaining an absolute sense of reverence for Ghostbusters itself. And weirdly, that's the thing about the film that works, is that this is ultimately a love letter from one man to his father's film. And in that regard, it works. It works on that level very well. That being said, Paul Rudd is borderline dead weight in this film, and his character is a dumb asshole. Like, seriously, fuck that guy. I liked him. I, I he grew on me, and then he did a thing where I was like, you're a fucking asshole. And no one is taking... Like, literally fails to be the adult in the room. Like, I understand that people probably just look at him like he's crazy, and he's trying to score with the kid's mom. But, like, literally, he knows everything the kids are telling their mom, and the police is true, and he says absolutely dick also how come no one no one seems to fucking recognize ghostbuster shit even though ghostbuster shit is all over youtube it's maddening and then the two main characters are a kid who's into science and a kid who's into unsolved mysteries and conspiracy theories and yet somehow neither of them knew about ghostbusters it's mind-bendingly oh sorry sorry when i get caught up when my brain starts working on this movie, it stops working. But when I engage my feels, the film is great. And that's the takeaway. It is not, if you can turn off your critic brain, it's a good ride. But if you are the kind of person who can't stop thinking about logical elements, about logical elements, this movie might drive you fucking crazy. Now moving on to number 16. Luca. Luca is not down here because it's bad. In fact, if anything, we have hit the top tier. Everything 16 and on was a movie I pretty much really enjoyed. In fact, I would even say Luca is my animated film of the year. That being said, I didn't see many animated movies that were new this, this year. I kind of wanted to see Ray of the Dragon, but I wasn't going to pay 30 bucks. Uh, but Luca is nice. It's a really nice family film that is incredibly, incredibly gay and i mean that in the best ways possible definitely definitely check out luca it's 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 a good animated film i have nothing more to say on it, it just check it out uh number 15 nobody this basically it's uh to put it overly simply basically this film is if john wick was a comedy and it is actually written by the guy who wrote the first john wick movie first two john wick movies And Bob Odenkirk is the main character. It's also got uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd in it as his dad. And uh, they kick ass. It's got, it's funny. It's got great action scenes. Definitely a recommend. And I, the film I saw with it as a double feature, however, was the new Guy Ritchie film, Wrath of Man. Because, uh, you know, I love a good Jason Statham action flick, and that's why it's at number 14. Uh, this was a, was a fun romp. Uh, a little bit more serious than other Guy Ritchie films, but it still has its comedic moments. Um, it's got some good action scenes. And if I had to describe this film to people, I'd say it's also a little bit like John Wick. Except it's also... It's also like the grand, the closest thing we're going to get to a Grand Theft Auto movie, essentially, at this point. Jason Statham plays a, uh, plays a gangster whose son gets killed as a random bystander by a bunch of guys robbing an armored car. Now, he himself is a bank robber, and robber of armored cars, and he goes on a rampage to try and figure out who killed his son. When he can't figure it out, he goes undercover as an armored car driver in hopes that this gang of people will, will 
try to rob him so he can murder them. It is honestly a good time. <clears throat> Next up, number 13, The Matrix Resurrections. Oh boy. Oh boy. It's... I have a lot to say about this movie. Overall, I really enjoyed it. That being said, you should temper your expectations coming into it. Because it is, A, extremely meta. The film itself is a meta exam. The film itself starts off as a very meta complaint against Warner Brothers that there's, where they make it very clear to us that it was not the creator's idea to make this movie and that they only made it to prevent Warner Brothers from A, firing them and B, rebooting it without them. So that's an interesting way to start off a film and that may lose people, especially since the tone is pretty dramatically different from the other Matrix movies. And by that I mean it's funny. There's a lot of humor. A lot of meta-humor, to be fair. But there's also lots of jokes. There's literally a scene where it's where Keanu Reeves is a stand-in for the director as they sit there and listen to a bunch of other people try and tell him what made the Matrix great. And the film is full of things like this in essentially the first act. The second act, as the film goes on, the other way I would describe the film is that this is the movie where Lana Wachowski, coming back to the series, was like, you know what, I'm just going to spell this shit out for you. Because essentially the, the second half of the film is essentially spelling out the metaphors of The Matrix and trying to be like, see, this was the point the whole time but it was too subtle the first time. And by this, of course, I'm referring to two things, which is the fact that the machines are, in fact, not evil, but just part of a system that is evil. This is a, a big point from both the previous movies and this one, as this one shows humans, machines, and programs living in harmony, although there is still a vaguely totalitarian... Although the Matrix itself is still run by the totalitarian forces of the machine city. Now, a thing to comment on is that you should also know that while this film does have some solid action scenes, there is nothing in this film that tries to rival any of the action set pieces of the previous films. In fact, it almost feels like a deliberate choice to not, to not try to do that. And that's very interesting to me. You'll think there's some good action scenes, but it's certainly, it's, it's less of the focus, if I'm being completely honest. If I'm... <clears throat> but basically, the other thing is the film is spelling it out for us here. Neo and Trinity are, in, are a metaphor for being trans. Trinity and Neo are not lovers, they are one person. And that's the way it's meant to be. In this film, psychiatrists try to keep Neo away from his feminine side by force-feeding him pills. And they only gain their powers when they are together. And when they ultimately do, and these are spoilers, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be going into these, but when they ultimately do, it is Trinity who has the final say in the combat. And that's... And according to the Wachowskis, that's sort of been the whole point. They just, in the past, felt like they had to bury this in the film incredibly deeply. And now they feel comfortable spelling it out for a bunch of people who didn't fucking get it. And that is sort of the thing here, is the other movies are very subtle. And uh, this movie I found to be incredibly transparent. That being said, I did really enjoy this film. But I do, but it is probably my least favorite of the Matrix movies. Mainly because of its lack of subtlety and dramatic tonal change. But that being said, I'm a huge Matrix fan, and this film's, and I still really enjoyed this film. And I, and I may even like it more upon rewatching it. But that brings us to number 12. And this is my whole, wait, hold, no, okay. Wait, hold, no, I'm sorry. Technically, I guess another. Another movie on my list technically counts as a horror movie, but I would count this 
no. You know what? Even though the other movie's higher on the list, I would say that this is my horror movie of the year. To be fair, I only saw, like, three, and one of them I don't actually know if I consider it a horror movie entirely. But Malignant. Malignant, malignant, malignant. The first time I saw this movie, I did not know what to think of it, but I rewatched it, and I'm glad I did. Because this, upon the second rewatch, it's kind of awesome. Because essentially what James Wan has done here is he has used all his, all his conjuring, all his conjuring clout to make an incredible B-movie with an A-movie budget. And that's essentially what Malignant, it, Malignant is. I love how the movie fucks with you, trying to make you think, oh, it's another possession movie, or oh, it's another ghost movie, at least in the trailers and commercials. And then when you watch it, it's some wild-ass body horror with some wild-ass B-movie violence. Definitely recommend Malignant, although I will say I did call the twist super early on. Maybe the second time I saw the killer. That still being said, I love James Wan's huge troll move here. Awesome. Number 11, Black Widow. I liked Black Widow. I had a, thought it was a good time. Now, to be fair, part of this might be because I have no emotional attachment to Taskmaster whatsoever. Uh, and I understood what they were doing with Taskmaster was at least relevant to the themes of the film itself, you know, so I, I appreciate that shit. So I appreciate that shit, that's good. <clears throat> uh, that being said, it does feel weird that this film is coming out now. Uh, for starters... Black Widow is one of the main Avengers from the first Avengers movie. It, it feels like she should have at least gotten a film in the in the in the second, you know, the second uh, the second phase, you know, at at the latest. And that that feeling isn't helped by the fact that this movie literally takes place after Civil War, uh, which is, you know, uh. In phase, what is that? Phase, phase three, into phase two? I don't know. The point is, the point is, it's hard to ignore the fact that this film is late, and not up to the epicness of the movies that come out before it. But that being said, if you accept Black Widow as a as a as a fun action adventure, almost female Bond type story, uh, it's a good time. I don't understand why the film gets quite as much hate as it does. I mean, sure, the impact of the action may be lessened by the fact that you know sure as hell she's going to live, but, you know. I watch movies I already know the ending to, too, and still enjoy them, so. Still enjoyed it. But it, it, it does feel like a little bit too little too late, which is why it's not in my top ten. Number 10. Oh, but I did give it four stars on lit, uh, on Letterboxd. Same for Malignant. Number 10, though. The Suicide Squad. A lot of people love this movie, uh, which is fine. Uh, for me, it was a little bit of a weird experience. I actually had to watch this one twice to know how I felt about it. And I did enjoy it. I gave it four stars on, on Letterboxd. And, you know, it's, it's fun. It's action-packed. It certainly reminds me of... It certainly nails some of the uh, some of the Suicide Squad comics, um, and I should preface this with that I I am a huge Suicide Squad comics person. I own almost every collected volume. I'm probably missing some of the newer collected volumes, to be honest, though. But like, I have almost all the Ost I have I have all the Ostrander run that was collected into trade paperbacks, and I have all the I have all the new Fifty Two and the new Suicide Squad. And I have... Uh, the point is, I have a lot of them. So I love this comic. So for me, I go in with a little bit more of a fanboy eye to it. And the first thing I notice is that James Gunn pretty much kills off almost anyone who's actually ever been in the comics in favor of using characters that are that have never been in the comic and are, are more just him trying to make deep cuts on obscure 
obscure DC characters. And, and uh, I mean, I guess that's his prerogative. That totally fits into the style of, uh, of Suicide Squad comics. But uh, I, di I, I can't lie, as a reader of the comics, even though I would say that this film is um, <coughs> technically better in, in terms of the fact that it hasn't been butchered by a studio, uh, the other movie hit me harder. It, yeah, no, I understand it has major problems. But as a Suicide Squad fan, there's just moments in it that I love because it just nails the characters that I enjoyed reading in the comics so well. A and this movie... Uh, nails the the set the feel of the comics, and uh, not the characters. Uh, they were not not the characters, and uh, I also the impact of this film was also probably lessened for me because I literally predicted every single death. The, literally, the only death I was wrong about is the are the ones where they faked me out and brought a character back at the end. That being said, there's all. That being said, um, while I would say that the Suicide Squad somehow is not greater than the sum of its parts, it has a lot of great parts. I love Rick Flag. Harley Quinn's always great, although I did like her in Birds of Prey a little bit more. And various other characters do a great job. And when I rewatched it, I liked the newer characters even more. Um, I, I will say I, I never got attached to Ratcatcher the every way everyone else seems to have. I just, that character's never hit for me. Although I did like her more the second time I watched it. But that's number 10. Number 9, Army of the Dead. Gave it five and a half stars on Letterboxd. This was just a good time. Technically, I guess this could be considered a horror movie. I didn't find it, although I didn't honestly find it particularly scary. But it is still technically... Zombies, so that is technically kind of the horror genre. I had a good time with this. And this movie has also convinced me that Dave Batista can actually act. And I'm very excited to see where he takes his career. And I thought the cast is great. It's a lot of fun. It is, is probably the funniest Zack Snyder movie I've ever seen. It's loaded with weird Easter eggs and clues as to what's going to happen in the future of the universe. Because Netflix has signed on to make this a whole fucking franchise. And I'm down with it. I had a good time. There's not really a whole much more to say here. This film is just a damn good time if you like zombie movies. Uh, super violent, just to be a heads up, you know, it's a zombie movie. Like, this movie won me over from the very beginning. Because, like, literally, the opening credits of this film have more character development and storytelling than some films have in their entire fucking runtime. Movie's great. Next up, number eight, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which I gave four stars on Letterboxd. Dope movie. Like, honestly, awesome. Has great fight scenes. Great fight scenes, great action. Love the characters. Just a good time. Why isn't it higher on my list? There were just movies I liked more than it, to be completely honest. The film also kind of feels like it's trying to, like, pull off the same Black Panther magic, but with Chinese culture instead of, like, African culture, uh, which I, I guess is legit, <clears throat> but honestly, Legend of the Ten Rings just got kick-ass kung fu, and that's really all I could want from it. Um, the ending gets... Not everyone will dig the ending, but I do love how they finally, finally, finally redeemed the Mandarin character. Although he's no longer called the Mandarin, which is fine, but like, they finally did it. They finally made it not suck. Although I do disagree with their decision to cut out this, there's apparently a deleted scene that ties it into Iron Man 1 more clearly. I'm mad that scene did not stay in the film. Number seven, No Time to Die. Not gonna lie, this might be my favorite James Bond movie. James Bond movies, in my opinion, are always fun, but the best ones, the most memorable ones, are the ones that actually have something to say about Bond's character. And this one definitely does. I won't spoil this one. I'm just going to tell you to see it because I have no real... Co I will say that there is a thing that happens in the film that I called as, as soon as the uh, element was introduced. I was like, nope, that's what that's going to do this. We're going to get a super downer ending. I know it. Uh, but it's it's honestly great. It's like, it's like Logan, but for Bond. It's a fantastic story and a great way to in, uh, create, uh, 
Daniel Craig's run as Bond. Fantastic. Five stars on Letterboxd. Number six. And this one will also be controversial because I, frankly speaking, do not know why people hate this movie. I This was one of my favorite movies of the year. I am blown away that it got almost zero recognition. I am, of course, talking about Hugh Jackman in Reminiscence, which I gave four and a half stars. Absolutely loved it. Come on, people. It's a fucking neo-noir cyberpunk thriller set in the near future where that is very believable in terms of what people might do in that future and how it might look in terms of the effects to our culture. I thought Reminiscence was dope. I've heard some people complain there were too many characters and things to keep track of. I don't know what's wrong with those people. I'm sorry if you're one of those people, but for God's sake, it's not like this film was Gosford Park or anything. It is a bitching love mystery, neo-noir, cyberpunk thrill ride from the from the from the people who brought us goddamn Westworld the the HBO series not not the uh, Michael Crichton movie absolutely do recommend especially if you're an adult adults i this is a very i think it's maybe it's more an adult film but honestly i thought it was awesome it's gorgeous it's a good time i heard people call it cheesy those people have no fucking soul and the twist blew my mind but it's also organic at the same time. Number five. Also, one of the... Oh, number five is also one of the movies I thought was extremely underrated this year for some reason. Eternals. I don't know why you bitches don't like Eternals. I thought Eternals was great. It had everything I would want from a... I just... Some people are... I thought this movie was great, okay? And I just... I don't understand what people didn't like about it. I thought the characters were well-developed. I thought I loved the epic scale, the, the world-building, the climax, the twist. I had a great fucking time with this film. It is one of my... Honestly, one of my favorite Marvel movies. All hail Jack Kirby, creative genius. And the people who made this mo movie, also great. Honestly, honestly, I think that... Film critics just hate it. Anytime anyone would dare act like a superhero movie could be touching or meaningful. I think critics hate that. It's my only explanation. If it's not goofy and full of jokes, critics seem to be like, and I don't get it. I absolutely don't get it. Eternals is awesome. And it does have jokes. I'm not saying it doesn't have jokes. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's great. Number four, movie I gave five stars, Dune. Dune is, I mean, you got to see Dune. I mean, I don't even know where to begin or what I even should say about Dune. It's a fantastic sci-fi fantasy film. It had me entertained the entire time, both times I watched it, once in theaters and once on HBO Max. I, I genuinely don't understand anyone who'd be hating on Dune. Dune is awesome. And literally, the only thing that doesn't put it higher on the list is it's a part one. Although, I look forward to part two very much. Absolutely epic, great movie. Brings to number three. Spider-Man, No Way Home. Spider-Man, No Way Home. Oh my god. They fucking pulled it off. Five stars on Letterboxd. Eternals was going to be my best Marvel movie of the year. But no, it definitely goes to Spider-Man No Way Home, which blew me away. Well, maybe blew me away is the wrong sense. I mean, like, it's not the deepest of the stories, but the way it's handled and the way it carries out is great. And the performances are stellar. Tom Holland is great in it. And I'm sorry, I'm going to drop a spoiler here because I can't talk about why I love this movie so much without the spoilers. I'm sorry. If you, if you haven't seen this movie, for the love of God, put your fingers in your ears or mute this shit for a few minutes or, or whatever. Because the fact of the matter is, the thing that makes this movie so damn delightful is just every goddamn minute that the three Spider-Men are on screen together. It's just pure fucking movie magic. 
I mean, oh my God. They are, it's amazing to see them together. I love Andrew Garfield. And Tobey Maguire continues to be, uh, to live on as the most awkward Spider-Man, or as I call him, the Spider-Man who doesn't fuck. Don't get me wrong, he's got a girlfriend who he makes love to. But I assure you, that this Peter Parker does not fuck. Okay? And then there's... And Tom Holland's great in it. They're all fucking great. Andrew Garfield, though, is still my favorite. I love him in his movies, and I love him in this movie. And I'm so happy that there is redemption for so many actors and characters in this film. Absolutely fantastic. Loved every minute of it. I... Are there things I could criticize about it? Sure, sure. But those things will not undermine the pure joy of watching the Spider-Men interact with each other and mentor each other and give each other fucking positive reinforcement. It's fucking beautiful. The Green... Number two, The Green Knight. This is my art. This is the most artsy film I saw this year, and quite frankly, also probably the best fantasy movie I saw this year. It's it's beautiful and methodical and contemplative. It's absolute art. It's full of great performances, great music, great visuals, great storytelling. It is one of the best fantasy films I've seen in years. Why? Because the filmmakers respected the story and didn't try and turn it into some ridiculous Hollywood fantasy epic where it had to have a final battle and there had to be like a dragon or some shit. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of fantasy in this film. My point is that this is a fantasy movie that genuinely feels like a unique fantasy experience and not like every other fantasy movie that Hollywood tries to fucking put out where it's the same goddamn Lord of the Rings shit crip off every time. Even when you're making fucking Alice in Wonderland. Why does Alice in Wonderland need a fucking final battle, Tim Burton? That's fucking nonsense. The Green Knight is great. 100% recommend. So what's number one, you might ask? What could I possibly have put between Above the Green Knight, which is absolute cinema and art? Well, you know, films are also about the way they make us feel. And when it comes to the movies I saw this year, the movie that just brought me alive inside the most and was just, I was most happy to see wasn't even in theaters. I'm, of course, talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League, which I know a lot of people on the internet hate his films and give him plenty of bad faith interpretations. They're bad faith interpretations, brother. <clears throat> based on no relevant things. But Zack Snyder's Justice League is legitimately probably one of my favorite comic book superhero movies of all time. It definitely has the the best final battle in any superhero movie I've ever seen. It's, like, perfect. I watched this movie at least seven goddamn times. Now, to be fair, not all of us times watching it all the way through at one sitting. I did finish the film at least six to seven fucking times this year. Last year. Whenever you're listening to this. Whatever. I watched it in color. I watched it in black and white. Side note, if you have HBO Max, I heavily encourage you to watch this film in black and white if you haven't already. It's fucking gorgeous in black and white. Absolutely stunning. Especially if you think the, uh, the color version is quote-unquote too dark. You know, you could adjust your television set you know weirdo uh but if you do think that movie is too dark i also recommend the black and white version uh because it's dynamic with lighting it's completely different than the color version it's it's gorgeous absolutely gorgeous 100 percent recommend Zack snyder's justice league both justice's gray edition or if you prefer color the regular version this film meant a lot to me and this film hit very hard is it perfect maybe not but i did give it five stars on Letterboxd. Is it occasionally bloated? Yes. It is the th is the fun is there a part of the film that is essentially just a basically a really long after credit scene? Yes, absolutely. Are the new scenes that were filmed really just teasers to let everyone know what we're, mis we're missing out on because because Warner Brothers doesn't seem ready to make that Justice League 2 movie? 
Uh, yeah. No, that's entirely what those are in there for. But I'm happy they're in there because I love that scene with the Joker. It lets us see a side of the Joker in Batman we haven't gotten to see on cin- in cinema before or in movies. And I think that's fucking awesome. Is it necessary for this film as a whole? Probably not. But you know, if we never get those sequels, then I'm going to be even more happy that those scenes exist. If we were guaranteed to get the sequels, I'd probably say the movie didn't need these scenes. To be fair. But honestly, when I look at this movie, and yeah, I know it's four hours long. But when I watch it, I honestly couldn't tell you any single scene that I personally would cut out of it. Absolutely amazing. I love it. This movie made my year. 100% recommend it if you haven't seen it before. And 100% recommend it in black and white if you haven't seen it in black and white yet. So that's my movie of 2021. So my movies of 2021. I did see a lot of other movies this year, but those were the only ones that came out this year. I don't think I forgot anything, and if I forgot anything, maybe that's a bad sign for that movie to begin with. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in to this very first episode of Ruben Uncut, where I gave you my as uncut as I could opinions on these movies. What will I talk about next? Who knows? Now, before we go, let's just check back in with Ben Shapiro. Hello, everyone. It's me, Ben Shapiro. And I just had the most amazing dry vagina sex of my entire life that lasted a whole 31 seconds. New record for me. My wife even said, hey, that wasn't so bad.